Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I have two special guests this morning, Mr. Justin Ferguson and Mr. Craig Hankins from Mississippi Farm Bureau Federation. So guys, welcome to Stoneville. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate you having us. Welcome to the new and updated podcast studio for the moment. Justin had brought up the fact that the couch was in here last time he was here. No more couch. Both Justin and Craig are repeat podcast guests. Justin, we don't even know. It's probably been at least three years ago since Justin was here. We had Mike McCormick. I don't think we recorded those the same day. I don't know why we would have. But I know Mike did an episode with us one year, too. And then Craig was on with us most recently with Farm Bureau. Uh, You and Andy Whittington did the episode as a short course sponsors last winter so we definitely appreciate that yeah i wasn't part of the old podcast studio I, I'll, I'll, this is all i've known so it's well you professional were, looks good that's a good that's, problem to have you were still working for mississippi state then right yes sir how long have you been with farm bureau three years three years yeah so you would have still been with extension when we did that so craig worked for several years what is it, like six or seven seven years, years. seven years mm-hmm. in bolivar county uh, with Mississippi State Extension, Mississippi State graduate. Justin, I don't know where you went to school. I don't guess I've ever asked. I'm a Delta State fighting okra, okay. believe it or not. Delta. So is that your connection? Is that how you got kind of into the row crop? Somewhat, yeah. Um, I spent four years at, at Delta State, finished in accounting. And I, you know, I, I obviously don't use my accounting degree a lot <laughs> lately, um, but finished up with a master's in uh, business met some folks here locally and of course I've you know got an agricultural background and spent some time interning in DC in the past during uh during college and so got an opportunity to to apply for the role that Craig is in now and worked in that area for about 10 years and um was kind of the the North Delta guy and the cotton rice and soybean guy for Farm Bureau working with the promotion boards and so forth and and then got the opportunity to slide into this role that I'm in now which is our National Affairs Coordinator, which is basically where the I'm the guy between Washington and our local folks here, uh, also between uh, our liaison between the American Farm Bureau, our national group in D.C., and all the agencies that we work with, USDA. Uh, Andy Whittington is our uh, environmental coordinator. He's our primary contact for EPA, but uh, he and I work closely together on mostly federal issues. Justin jumped the gun on me. That's all right. It fits in. So here comes my question. So I know both of y'all have an interest in agriculture beyond your jobs, both of you, maybe maybe not row crop agriculture. So, Justin, I know y'all got cows. Craig, do you have any cows now, or are you just horses? I'm, I'm just horses right just now. Just horses. All right. Justin, my question is for you. If you leave Memphis, how many cows do you think there are on the levee between Memphis and Greenville? I'm going to say 700. I have no idea. That's a wild guess. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to say he's low. If Maybe. you held my feet to the fire, I would have said low, but I don't have anything to base when, that on. <laughs> when, I was, when, I, when I worked for Extension, part of that, we, we put together a, a Delta Cattlemen's Association, uh, believe it or not, and actually had a, a bigger turnout than we thought we would, we would have, and we actually got to counting up, and this was essentially from Cahoma County to, down to Essequina, and with, it, with the folks in there counting – and a lot of these, you know, running cattle on the levee, I think we were, we came up with about 2,000 head just from, from Cahoma down to Essequina oh, wow. County. Wow. Uh, so a lot more than you would 
expect. I'll occasionally talk to somebody from a different part of the country, and they'll family farms, and then they you know, row crop, and then they got cows too, and then they'll ask about people around here, like man, oh, we it's too wet in the winter time. We don't have any cows to speak of in the Delta. And I know there are in places, but the majority of them, I feel like, have always been along the levee. Too much standing water. <laughs> Craig, we, we know, and Jason went through the whole entire situation that, that we forget quite easily that you had been with an extension for so many years. Well, why don't you give us a little refresher what you do within Farm Bureau? Like Jason said, I did go to work for uh, uh, Mississippi State uh, right out of college, I did my undergraduate in ag engineering, technology, and business at State, and then went on to get a master's in agronomy there. Uh, went to work in Bolivar County for Extension, and, and talking about Farm Bureau and their relationship with, with Extension kind of takes us into that, that conversation. But this job opportunity came up. Like I said, Justin moved on to that uh, national affairs role. There uh, was, a, was a space there, and I had the opportunity to apply for the job and, and really able to to get into being in that in the in that area in the Delta, really, as far as my skills and education, it really kind of was a, a no-brainer. Being able to work with Farm Bureau and, and everything that 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 Farm Bureau stands for and their mission with the ag advocacy and my my family background in agriculture, uh, too. But but part of my job is I've got I'm a regional manager and a, a commodity coordinator for for cotton, rice, and soybeans. So you know Farm Bureau Federation being a nonprofit 501c5 entity. Every county in the state has its own Farm Bureau board. So part of my job is, is making sure that those boards are, are, are reaching out, doing the, the mission of Farm Bureau in that ag advocacy uh, role, abiding by the rules of a, of a nonprofit organization. But then also, uh, like Justin will talk about, is, is Farm Bureau, just like Extension, being a grassroots organization. So our, our policy, the things that we fight for on a state and national level, all comes from those boots on the ground folks in the in the countryside that are that agriculture is how they make a living and and aren't always able to leave the farm to go to the capital and speak on behalf of their living and what they do and so that's that's part of our job is, is getting their issues together putting together that our, our policies and what we stand for and then and going on their behalf uh, to those uh, legislators and 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 trying to to get those things accomplished on, on their behalf. So my, my job is working with the counties on the nonprofit side, the advocacy, but the advocacy side, but then also being a liaison for Justin to say, hey, these are issues that, that are coming up in the counties and then uh, within these guys' operations. There may be something already that, that they're working on that, that I can get back with them and say, hey, we're working on it, or this wasn't on our radar but but we definitely we need to get some policy. We need to to talk about what our stance is on this because it's coming, kind of deal. And then also kind of in that same role with with the commodity responsibilities is we've got our commodity committees and and part of that grassroots uh, situation and and being uh, trying to to make sure that we're on top of issues and and that that Farm Bureau is at the table in conversations uh, when it has when it's gonna uh, have an impact on these uh, farmers and and ranchers. Uh, in the state and then also in, uh, across the Mid-South, also working with our sister commodity organizations, you know, national organizations to to make sure that we're, all of our policies and, and things are kind of lining up uh, when we go to, when Justin goes to, to make an ask in D.C. or our state folks are, are working on things that making sure coming together as ag as a collective voice uh, and making sure we're all on the same page uh, when we go to uh, to talk about those issues. 
I know over the years, you know, Justin and I talk pretty routinely throughout the years. Craig and I do now as well. When things do come up, an issue I see or I think they need to know about or an issue they see that they give me a heads up on. So I always really appreciated working with you guys. So what are some of the issues that Farm Bureau is, is working on now advocating on behalf of our growers? You know, one of the biggest ones that's on our radar list for the next 18 months is the 2023 Farm Bill. Um, the current five-year legislation we have, it, it expires September 30th of, of next year. So we're less than 11 months away from a Farm Bill that's about to expire. So what we've done here at Farm Bureau, we have uh, started a process back in April of this of this year to meet with our members, uh, meet with our commodity committee leadership, whether you're a cotton, rice, uh, soybean, cattle, poultry grower, we've gone through a lengthy exercise to, to, to talk to those members and talk through, you know, what programs are working, what programs are safety net programs are working, what, what's not working well. And so we've, uh, we've spent about three months going through a process to identify the priority issues that we're going to have leading into this Farm Bill conversation. The House and Senate both ag committees have had a, a number of hearings. Largely, they've been uh, very preliminary in their in their intent so far. We've uh, we started our process to try to go ahead, even though you know some of those priorities may change, may get things may get added, things may get subtracted. But we've got a good baseline of what our issues are going to be, uh, and I'll just mention a couple of those, and then we can talk about you know some of the timing and, and challenges we're going to see with this farm bill. But probably the, one of the bigger issues for us us is a, a lack of conservation funding. Mississippi led the way in the uh, CSP enrollment program for 2017 and 2018. And CSP is a program that NRCS administers that rewards the farmer for, on a five-year contract for conservation measures on their operation. Okay, so it's really, it's a good program that really is, has tremendous benefit, whether it's cover crops or whatever, conservation type programs for both row crop and for livestock and that's a very important point for us so what happened is the 2018 farm bill changed up the formula for how those dollars are are distributed across the states and so nationally we moved away from mississippi having an, an annual acreage cap to having an annual dollar amount cap so at one point we had an acreage cap of let's just say you know, 100,000 new acres into CSP. The 2018 Farm Bill changed that to a certain dollar amount. So there's a baseline cap of 2 to $3 million, which is not a lot of money. And so preparing for the 2023 bill, we're going to figure out a way that, and see if there's a possibility to increase uh, our engagement in CSP and increase that allotment to our state. There's many states that don't use CSP. So Mississippi, our NRCS office has been very good and aggressive about going after other states' dollars that are not being utilized. And so that formula change in 2018, uh, the 2018 Farm Bill, changed the ability for us to be able to do that. And so what you're seeing right now is a lot of five-year contracts that were started in 2017 and 2018 that are now up for renewal. Uh, and when those farmers signed those contracts, they were on the assumption there would be an automatic additional five-year sign-up and renewal. Well, now that's not the case. And so that's, that's going to be a big priority for us moving into the farm bill, next farm bill to see if we can change that in any way possible to try to get 
as many dollars back to the state because uh, a lot of these things that we're doing, you know, conservation measures are things that we've always done, right? And this this conversation on climate change and conservation gets louder and noisier as we go through. So that's going to be a big a big topic of discussion for us going into the next bill. Um, increases in reference prices, uh, as you know, most of y'all know, our row crop producers. Um, generally favor the price loss coverage or PLC program. It's a program that works like the old counter-cyclical program to where there's a payment triggered when the market price, national market average price of that commodity falls below a specified amount in, in law, okay? So any difference in the, in the national price and the, and the floor, there's a payment trigger. And so obviously with high diesel costs, high inflation, high fertilizer cost, there's a lot of conversation about do we need to increase that reference price to cover those additional inputs and the increases in inputs. There's also some conversations going on about indexing uh, some of those reference prices uh, to flex maybe inflation or uh, um, you know the margin increase that these farm, our farmers have seen. So that'll be a big discussion. Uh, a lot of our national groups, uh, USA Rice, uh, National Cotton Council, American Soybean have already been talking about the target prices or reference prices for the PLC program. I think generally you won't see a major rewrite of this current farm bill. You'll see tweaks and knobs turned around the edges, and I think you'll see some adjustments. But the basic structure, I think, will remain in place. One last thing I'll mention on issues uh, as far as needs. So our cattle producers have really seen – have really had a difficult couple of years. I mean, you've got, y'all remember since when COVID started, before COVID started, you had a big a big fire in one of the major plants uh, of the Packers in Kansas. And so there was this event that took place to where, and, and following through watching COVID to where protein, in particular beef, was through the roof in the grocery store as far as the price. Uh, but at the farm gate value, the, the down chain effects of the, the value of, of the product farmer gets going into the system was very low. And so we've, we've spent a lot of time looking at what adjustments could, could be made. And so one thing that we're looking at are, is working with Mississippi State in particular, the, your ag economist Josh Maples, look at if there's ways that we can better utilize some of the risk management programs like the LRP or Livestock Risk Protection Program. Uh, to better fit our, our cow-calf producers in the southeastern part of the state. Currently, the program's set up to where it favors more of a feeding operation in Kansas versus a cow-calf operator in Georgia or Mississippi. So we're looking at that as well. Um, Timing-wise, you know, I think everything right now is is watching of what's going to happen on, in November, right? Uh, we've got a national election. Uh, you've got every member of the House of Representatives that's going to be up for re-election. You've got a third of the Senate that's up for re-election. Um, I think the hearings that we've that the House and Senate Ag Committees have had so, so far are mostly preliminary. And so I think what you'll see is uh, after uh, the November election, deter- de- depending upon who controls it, Congress, I think, will deter- determine how quickly we move through a farm bill or not. If the House uh, does uh, look like it may flip to the Republican Party and control There'll be a three- or four-month transition period there from January to April where the transition of power takes place with the committee structure. So the ag committees will – the gavel will be basically handed from a Democratic leader to a Republican leader, and that takes time. 
And so uh, I think as far as timing on the farm bill, <clears throat> you could see really no major traction start until March or April next next year in 2023, which puts you right up against that deadline of the September 30th cutoff. So a lot of folks were talking right now about what that looks like and uh, if an extension is going to be warranted. I think it's a little early to say so far, but it, it could very well be a farm bill that we have to extend for a, a one-year period of time to give the new Congress an opportunity to, to get their legs under them uh, and get the committee structure established. We will have a lot of challenges uh, on this next com- this next farm bill. This will be the first $1 trillion farm bill that Congress has ever taken upon. Uh, currently, the, the nutrition title which, as y'all know, there is a Mississippian that's the reason that we have nutrition programs married to farm policy in the Farm Bill by a, a man named Jamie Witten, who was a congressman from uh, North Mississippi. He saw back in the 1970s the fact that urban members were not voting for a Farm Bill. And the way that you tied nutrition and farm policy together gets bipartisan support because we would never pass a Farm Bill with just the farm policy part of it only. You're not going to get enough farm state senators and representatives to get to 218 on the House floor or 60 in the Senate. So you got to put that together. And so this last farm bill we just passed in 2018 passed on the largest margin of any farm bill that's ever passed in history because you had that bipartisan support for both the nutrition title, good or bad, the nutrition title, to bring the urban vote to the table, and then the farm policy part and crop insurance part to bring the farm state folks to the table. So this will be a largest farm bill from a budgetary standpoint we've ever seen. Post-November, uh, in the House specifically, you'll have a, a group of freshmen, a bunch of new freshman members that come in. And so there'll be a massive educational component to bringing them up to speed as to why you should vote for this farm bill, what it means back to the consumer Uh, in your home district. Back to the House side, you know, you'll see a lot of these new members join the House Freedom Caucus. The Freedom Caucus is a group of folks that are budget hawks, for lack of a better word, and they will have a hard time voting on the farm bill. So that's going to be a major factor for us, is that we may need a one-year extension to to get a chance for all of our, my contacts and my counterparts across the country to spend time talking to these new members to get their vote for a farm bill. They're going to come in right out of the gate and be expected to vote on a $1 trillion farm bill within three months of being on the job. So that's a real, you know, back home, that's a real difficult pill to swallow uh, in terms of getting reelected. On the timeline, you didn't say this specifically, but basically there's three possible scenarios. One would be an extension of the current farm bill. One would be a, a new farm bill with the control of the legislature as it stands now, and number three would be a flip of control of the legislature. And then, of course, you got the House and Senate and the possibility yep. of, of a split there. In the short term, which of those three would be most favorable for our growers? Most favorable would be a new farm bill, and that gives you you know five years of stability, right? So when farmers go in and apply for a loan or you know, sit down with their accountant or banker to get ready for the next year, there's that level of stability. You got you got price support programs, you got conservation programs, you got crop insurance. It's always okay. This is it's what it's going to look like for five years. Uh, so for us, a, a, a new farm bill would would be best. Uh, second alternative would be a one year extension of what we currently have. 
Okay, Justin, obviously at the national level, there's quite a bit going on when it comes to forming policy, at least for the future, because that's still a little up in the air and we're not going to know much for three weeks from today. On a more local level, what additional large policy type efforts are ongoing at present that Farm Bureau is advocating for? Sure. Good, good question, uh, Tom. When the current administration took over and new political appointees were placed at EPA, it created a whole new uh, environment for us. And a, and a huge shout out to Andy Whittington, our staff, who is our environmental coordinator. Uh, Andy, uh, his job at Farm Bureau, working with me and others, is to monitor regulatory action. So he, he works, he is our guy that works with our local DEQ. Uh, he is also our guy that monitors the Federal Register uh, and monitors activities at EPA. Uh, Andy has been a past member of the EPA Pesticide Policy Dialogue Committee, which is a federal uh, kind of a federal committee established uh, to look at pesticide policy. So from a pesticide standpoint, Andy's job is, has, is more busy than it's ever been before. Specific products that we have concerns about currently are a lot of the big ones that we all know well that are out in full commercial use right now, uh, dicamba, atrazine, and one here recently that EPA has made an intent to maybe make some changes to the label on diuron. The new process that EPA is having to go through, as y'all know, you know, EPA gets sued by every environmental group on every decision they make, whether it's a product registration, whether it's a product re-registration. And so to try to mitigate that, uh, EPA internally has started this new, uh, let me back up, it's not really a new system, it's a in addition to the current system of approving products for registration and re-registration. And it's a channel that has to go through this in, uh, Endangered Species Act deliberation. And that deliberation is in consultant consultation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. So whether it's a, an animal or plant, uh, every product now has to go through this, this ESA check-the-box process. And so it's taken a lot longer, but... Uh, their intent is to try to keep the lawsuits at bay long term. So when you finally get a product through that process, it should withstand this Endangered Species Act legal threat, right? And so we're going to see a tremendous amount of slowdown in products right now that are getting approved because now this Endangered Species Act component is a major part of the process. One thing that we've done here locally, Tom, to educate better uh, some of the folks at, at, at EPA is we had the opportunity to host eight officials here uh, in September. We, uh, we flew them into Memphis and uh, three days later flew them out of Jackson. The officials on that tour were some very high-level people within the EPA decision-making process. We had the ag advisor to the administrator, a guy named Rod Snyder, we had the director of the Office of Pesticide Programs, a guy named Ed Messina. And then we had uh, four others under his uh, Office of Pesticide Programs, many of which were in the review and, and uh, re-registration division. And then we had two folks from the uh, Atlanta EPA office, the ag advisor to the regional administrator and also the regional administrator's chief of staff from Atlanta. So the purpose of that trip uh, was to take time and talk to them about the products that we utilize, many of which are currently under this review, 
uh, and to show them that the Mid-South region specifically has a very unique challenge when it comes to weed pressure and insect pressure. We have no any in no other, we're the heaviest area that deals with those two components in crop production. And so we talked about the importance of those products and, and why we're a little different than the rest of the country. And we, we took them to, to, to several farms. We brought them here. Y'all did a fabulous job, Jason, of talking to them and sharing the science with them. And that's the thing that we've got to work with within the EPA structure is we've got to have, we've got to show them the data and you got to show them the science. And sometimes their modeling is, is not applicable to what's happening in the real, the real world. And we saw that in the case of Diuron. Uh, Diuron is the only product that is really viable for the catfish industry to fight the level of, of algae that grows in the pond that causes all flavor. So y'all know when you've had all-flavored catfish, when, when it happens, the fish makes it to the processing plant. They have to send that load of fish back to the, the pond if it has all flavor. And they go through multiple layers of testing before it gets there. But EPA's model, when looking at the groundwater impact, showed that there was a tremendous ability and concern for groundwater impact. When catfish farming, there's number one, there's such a minute level of this diuron product that's put in the pond to combat the algae. Uh, number two, it's the only product they have available on the market. And number three, the groundwater impact, showing them data that Jimmy Avery has had for years, enlightened them that the groundwater impact that they were so concerned about really was not applicable here. And so we spent time talking to them. Again, we're, they're still under the review phase of this product, but I think, you know, if anything, we, uh, we tried to educate them uh, as to, and, and many of those people on on the trip had never been to a farm, period. They're sitting behind a desk in Washington making decisions for thousands and thousands of farmers using these products safely and sustainably. They're making those calls without ever being foot, setting foot on a farm. So that was a great opportunity, I thought, as far as a good job that Farm Bureau does to sort of educate uh, the folks at EPA working hand-in-hand, and I can't say this, stress this enough, hand-in-hand with the land grant and the the resource that y'all provide to those EPA officials is is absolutely critical and monumental. And y'all never have to doubt your work because it's always utilized uh, when the EPA looks at these decisions on on whichever product, just, you know, pick one. The land grant data on those decisions are invaluable. And, Jason, I can't tell you how good – Mississippi State has been in those conversations with EPA. I appreciate that. And I wish I could have been more involved in that tour. That was a few weeks after this foot deal. That was the week I confirmed that that scooter was not an off-road buggy. Jason was dead set on the fact that his Uh, little scooter was going to be good for (laughs) off-roading. And I believe Uh, I got a text when he was somewhere about, yeah, this doesn't do so good on a dirt turn row. We hit that turn (laughs) row in Tunica, and that was the – that was the end of that. So I think, uh, I think we had to end up pushing him a couple of times on the scooter to get him back on the truck, back to the truck. Wouldn't but you know, my me. my perception of the guys that I interacted with was kind of you don't know what you don't know, and like you mentioned with the information that Jimmy Avery shared with them, as kind of a really eye opening information for them, and and so I thought they were real receptive. They just absorbed it and took it as a positive thing. No, I, I think Don even had some really 
fascinating conversations with them about some of the the insect feeding that had gone on on parts of this farm and some of the insecticide applications he'd made to control that they they had pointed out i think to a field that we had and Don said, that's nothing. Let's, let's go show you another one. And they were really blown away when they got over there and saw the looper feeding. Which goes back to what Justin said, that this part of the country is just unique with some of the pest challenges that we have. Well, and it's important to get out sometimes and see that outdoor component because that's the part I think that is missed if your job really is you in front of the computer doing a computer modeling it's where that applicability occurs is very important and i think giving that exposure for them really helps and one thing that was eye-opening to me as well that i failed to mention since covid uh, a lot of the epa staff have not all been back in the office and as in one piece right and so we we got to the memphis airport And again, we had eight people total. And at baggage claim, some of those folks met each other for the first time and they work in the same agency. And so uh, they have this, you know, modified schedule back in the office still. And so these are people that not only have they never been to a farm, they've not met many of the colleagues they work with and they're in the same agency of the federal government. So that was eye-opening to me right out of the gate. It's like, wow, you know, y'all don't know each other yet. Uh, And they're in different divisions, right? A lot of times they don't overlap, but even still, that was an eye-opening experience. The COVID factor uh, with people being out of touch. We've we've all found out that phone and Zoom is outstanding, but you lack that human component of interaction. When you're in a room together, it's a lot more organic. It helps that I can look at you all and have that conversation with you. No question. 100%. Okay, Justin, you'd, you'd mentioned and alluded a little bit to the November election coming up. Uh, but with that in mind, what additional ag-related topics will there be post-November election? Good question, Tom. And, and um, we let me talk a little bit about the elections first and just kind of touch on that. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's – I think of an anticipation that the House will likely flip. Uh, at one time, many folks were saying there would be a 40-seat pickup in the House by the Republican Party. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that that's a much smaller window, could be a 15-seat pickup to 20. The U.S. Senate, as you all know, is a 50-50 split. The vice president uh, currently is the tiebreaker. I think the Senate right now, as it stands, a toss-up right now. Um, you've got some key races, Senate races in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Ohio, that are on the news every single hour. Uh, and the, the, I think the fate of the Senate will, will uh, come down to what happens in any, if all, those those states. So it's, it's, uh, those are, are very much in play. One thing that we've done, uh, Tom, proactively, and I'm really, I'm really proud of, of Farm Bureau and our membership for taking hold of this and, and moving it forward. But three years ago, we established a, uh, a federal political action committee. And so this is a fund that Farm Bureau members can support. And the purpose of this fund is, is to utilize this fund to support financially the campaigns of candidates that support agriculture. So what we're doing is taking our members and, uh, you know, utilizing, taking a minute to say thank you for what you do for ag. You take some tough votes, whether it's Farm Bill, whether it's labor, thank you. And so we have utilized uh, that political action committee to build relationships. And this is uh, 
we have uh, in a in the 2022 cycle we have invested about one hundred and seventy seven thousand dollars in various congressional candidates. Many of these are incumbents that have a record of support in ag. Many of these are folks that are coming on board, running for positions that support NAG. We had a Farm Bureau member in Missouri, the past Young Farm and Rancher Committee, that was running for an open seat. She's a Farm Bureau, she's part of Farm Bureau family. Those are folks that we need to support, right? So we've spent uh, a good bit of time and effort getting our legs under us. We started the pack right during the middle of COVID. But our members uh, have responded and, and, and have fully funded the new tool that we have. The worst thing that we could have done was to create a new car, as Mr. McCormick says, and not put gas in it. So our members have done a fabulous job of putting gas in the new car to make sure that we're utilizing. And people get all hung up about, you know, what's the fun doing? Well, what it does is open a relationship for us. Uh, and a good example of that, the incoming, likely incoming chairman of the House Agriculture Committee is a guy named G.T. Thompson. He is a, uh, a Pennsylvania House member. It's been in Congress since uh, 2012, I believe. He's going to chair the Ag Committee if the Republicans take over, uh, take over the House. Um, GT is a dairy guy. We had the opportunity to get to know him. We had the opportunity to host him in Mississippi last September. And we flew him into Memphis, and we showed him, uh, and we brought him right in the middle of harvest season. We put him on a combine, a rice combine. He'd never been to a rice farm in his life. We put him on a cotton picker. He had never been on a cotton farm in his life. We put him in a gin. So our pack utilizing it, building those relationships has been really helpful to not only support the folks in Mississippi as far as our delegation that are supportive of ag, but also branching out and utilizing our pack to help candidates and, and members of Congress from other parts of the country. Never dreamed we'd be uh, hosting a farm tour for uh, a, a member of Congress from Pennsylvania, uh, from rural Pennsylvania that grew up on a dairy farm that's still a large portion of his constituency are dairy farmers. So it's just an example of what uh, the benefits of our PAC has been able to do to open doors. And now we've had GT down here. When, when we bring members to Washington and we lo- we're lobbying on issues, GT knows us. He trusts us. That relationship is built. We know his staff. We know his chief of staff. We, we have a relationship with them to utilize when we have these issues to bring forward for our farmers and ranchers. So wrapping that up, just really excited about what our PAC has been able to do. We've, again, we've spent $177,000 in supporting 66 members of Congress from 23 states. We've almost touched half of the states in this country, and that's impressive. To your last point, Tom, about other issues that we're going to see post-November. Right in the South Delta area, as well as central Mississippi and moving on up through sweet potato country, we had a tremendous amount of, of, of rain uh, in late July, okay? So the crop was late in the season. We had a lot of soybeans and a lot of quality damage, okay? We had issues with grading. We had issues with quality. Uh, we're still having some issues in the Vardaman area with the sweet potato crop coming out of the field. There's going to be a call for ad hoc disaster assistance when Congress comes back to work after the November elections. Uh, we will be at the table talking about those issues. There is a push, I believe, among the southern region to look at making sure that in this ad hoc disaster assistance that's going to likely be worked on, that there's a quality loss adjustment for it. Uh, in previous ad hoc disaster pieces in 2018 and 2019, Congress authorized the QLA or quality loss adjustment, 
which was part of the old WIP program to help with this issue of quality loss. There's been some struggles with crop insurance, taking making sure that that there's you know ample coverage there. Uh, but I think you'll see uh, you'll see a push. So for those folks that have suffered quality loss damage, I think uh, at least Farm Bureau is going to be working toward uh, some sort of resolution to uh, try to help them once lamed up. Congress is under uh, a continuing resolution through December 16th. Their budget ended September 30th. So you know, you've heard the word CR or fiscal cliff. We did not jump off fiscal cliff. Congress uh, funded the government through December 16th at current levels only. And what's likely being talked about is when Congress comes back in after the election in December, could even get kicked over into January, February, when Congress has to go in and do something again on the funding of the federal government, there will likely be a push to add ad hoc disaster assistance. And so it'll piggyback or be attached to that piece of legislation. So we're working closely with our delegation uh, and other states uh, on that effort. Justin, Craig, that's that's a lot of really good content. And I know the one thing we did want to really not forget to talk about is the 100-year anniversary of Farm Bureau. Uh, so that's something we're definitely going to spend some time exploring with you all here on an additional episode. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. 